<sighs> extended sigh. Man, I'm uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hello, welcome to the show. I am your host, Casey Drotter. This is the CLE Sports Talk Podcast. I apologize. I'm just, you know, I'm, it's it's Tuesday afternoon after a long, eventful Monday night that saw me cycle through so many emotions. So still kind of gathering my wits, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Life update. I'm here to give you another episode of the show before grad school picks back up and I disappear into the void again. COVID update. I can't smell anything right now and it's weird. But you're not here for that. You're here to talk Cleveland sports and man, do we have a doozy to uncork today. Browns, Ravens, Monday Night Football, a litmus test for a team that's still trying to prove it is legit to about 65% of its own fan base, a Ravens team fighting for their playoff lives. It was truly a game built for the bright lights of primetime. And boy, oh boy, did it live up to its potential slash provide a savage kick in the pants. I will get to my ultimate conclusion of this game shortly, but for now, let's let's all just decompress from that one because there's just a ton to unpack in Cleveland's 47-42 to loss to the Ravens. <sighs> Look, there was a lot to like in this game for the Browns. A whole lot, even. Starting with, as always, quarterback Baker Mayfield. Final line, 28-47 of 47 passing for 343 yards, two touchdowns, an additional one on the ground, and a passer rating of just 87.5. Why? Well, unfortunately... Mayfield's streak of pass attempts without an interception came to an end. He made it a whole two months without throwing a pick. Of course, if you check Cleveland Twitter immediately after, again, his first interception since October 25th, you'd have thought it was his 50th of the season. No, 8th, actually. Either way, the immediate expectation after Baltimore trotted into the end zone on the very next play grabbing a 14-point lead with a little over a quarter to go, was ball game. That's it. The, the Browns, you know, they can't stop Lamar Jackson right now. And this is just what the team does. It folds. This is when it happens. An interception immediately followed by a touchdown. That's just the recipe. That is textbook Browns loss. We know the next steps. Browns wither into the night proving they still just aren't in the same league with the upper-tier AFC North teams. And that did not happen. What followed was three consecutive touchdown drives, each going at least 70 yards down the field. What followed was Baker Mayfield missing just three of his remaining pass attempts on the night, throwing for two touchdowns and scoring a go-ahead TD on the ground in the fourth quarter. What followed was the Browns just not giving up, hanging 42 points on Baltimore's defense and proving that no, these are not the same old Browns. These are not the players who run screaming into the corner when adversity arrives. This is not the team that shies away from any opponent with a record above 500. And Baker Mayfield, he's not the bum so many of you saw him as in week six. And yes, if you're wondering, I am 100% going to remind everyone every single time he has a solid performance 
that far too many people in this fan base wanted to kick him to the curb a quarter of the way into his third season in the pros. And again, my take is not, he is elite. It has always been, we can't be too reactionary to one bad game. Because when you do that, you set yourself up to look like a fool two months later when Baker is very much playing like a quarterback you can build a team around. You know, it's hard, I know, believe it or not, but whenever that time came for the Browns to find a franchise quarterback, he wasn't going to look like Otto Graham reincarnate. I know. Blew my mind, too. Of course, all of this, Baker's heroics, the Browns' overall offensive resolve, came in a losing effort. And Lord Almighty, did it sting. I'm going to preface all this by saying, The emotions I have towards this loss are not in any way the same I brought to the table last year after, say, oh, I don't know, Cleveland had itself a big game and proceeded to get beaten by Duck Hodges and Benny Snell. The Browns, despite what you read on Twitter from, again, their own fan base, remain both five games above 500 and in control of their own playoff destiny. With what certainly looks like a very favorable schedule across the next two games. No, no, my grumpiness really comes from, I kind of say it, just how avoidable the loss really was. Look, I know Lamar Jackson can be quite the terror for an opposing defense to deal with. I am not denying that at all, but the way he beat the Browns last night, I mean, my God. Start with the fact that the Ravens' passing game was almost fully neutralized for the better part of this contest. Jackson headed into halftime having completed three passes, and Baltimore was up 21-14 with complete control of the game. Defensively, my goodness, the Browns, they just couldn't avoid giving up a back-breaking play after back-breaking play. Uh, the Ravens, look at, look at their second touchdown drive of the night. One pass play, not one completed pass. Baltimore only attempted one single play through the air. It went for 10 yards. The rest, all seven other plays on the ground. Only once did one of those plays result in less than a 10-yard gain. Might as well have just walked into the end zone. Next touchdown drive. Four plays, 31 seconds. Two of those plays were incomplete passes. And then Lamar Jackson scrambled around in the pocket for a while hit Mark Andrews, who could have caught the pass sitting down and still had time to get up and gain extra yardage, a play which was immediately followed by Jackson running through a hole the size of a tunnel into the end zone. If that were it, I'd still be upset with Cleveland's defense, but good God almighty, did this unit save its best for last. All you had to do was stop Trace freaking McSorley. Baltimore's third-string QB, who entered the game because Lamar Jackson was enduring cramps, or, based on the suggestion of many watching the game, cramps minus the M. Late fourth quarter, 539 left in the game. Third and 10. Stadium is rocking. Baltimore is in its own territory. And McSorley hits Willie Sneed for 13 yards. I gotta tell ya, the lifelong Cleveland fan in me that sense of dread that often walks hand in hand with said fan. Yeah, that's when he showed up. Just crept right into the picture. 
Uh, you just knew how this was going to unfold. And if you didn't know on Mick Sorley's following first down, you sure as hell did when he went down with a knee injury only to have the game camera immediately cut to Lamar Jackson returning to the sideline like Willis freaking Reed. It just From that point on, it felt inevitable. Of course, I kind of figured Jackson would slow play his game-winning drive, not hit a 44-yard pass on 4th and 5 in his very first play back on the field. So, yeah, the Browns defense has a lot, a lot to burn from its memory after this one. And, and yeah, it was great to see Cleveland come back and tie the game late, but there wasn't a single fan of this team who didn't see one minute left on the game clock and think, crap, no, you gave him too much time. Everyone, my entire time went, oh, geez, one minute, just, that's just too much to give Lamar Jackson. And it was because Ho-Hum trots down the field and Justin Tucker, one of the most effective kickers the game has ever seen, seals the deal. All in all, just big plays. Gave up too many big plays, this defense. And Jackson only passed for 163 yards, half of which came on his final touchdown pass and the 39-yard throw to Mark Andrews. He ran for 124, averaged literally a first down and change per carry. I'm not going to sit here and armchair quarterback this thing and tell you that scheming against Lamar Jackson is super easy. By the way, plenty of those callers on 92.3 The Fan this morning. Maybe think before you call. Just throwing that out there. But for how long it took Baltimore to get its passing game looking remotely effective in this one, the Browns shouldn't have been fighting from behind for the bulk of that game. But they were. I get one stop, one stop against McSorley, and none of this happens. None. The Browns can milk out the clock with a one-point lead, the Nick Chubb-Kareem Hunt ground-and-pound KO, but no, no, death by a thousand paper cuts once again. Okay, now that, that's all out of my system. Feels good. Nice purge. I say this because despite all of that, despite the boot-to-shorts that final frame was. The Browns are still 9-4. and four. They can bounce right back next week against the Giants and tighten their grip on a playoff spot I will not even remotely assume is a given until I actually see the update, Browns clinch playoff berth. I don't know what the hell you guys are doing assuming something like that is a foregone conclusion. I don't have it in me. I'm not saying it won't happen. I just... I need to see more than 13 games before assuming a Lucy pulls the ball away ending is no longer on the table. I've been burned before. Still, a very high number of Browns fans are just steaming mad about this one. They're acting as if the fourth loss of the season happened when it usually does in week four and not in mid-December. This team showed a lot Monday night that they can hang. That the offense doesn't just beat up on bad teams. That Baker Mayfield can take over a game when needed. The Browns battled back from two. Two separate 14-point holes and never gave up the way we often see Browns teams do. And proved that maybe, should they make the playoffs, they can make some noise while they're at it. But again, so many people in this fan base are just accustomed to misery. That the team losing its fourth game on December 14th 
is still reason to summon the Doomsayers. Yeah, it sucked the way it wrapped up. After seeing that offensive effort, I you wanted to see him win the game. But if you can't take a minute, step back and realize that it's almost Christmas and you're still talking about a playoff berth instead of solidifying a top five draft pick. I, I don't know. I figured that provide some sense of assurance. Some sense of, ah, that stinks. We'll get him next time. I figured that the Browns going toe-to-toe in a slugfest with one of their AFC North bullies would have people embracing a huge sign of growth. But no. Sadness. Always. Infinite sadness. And yet, the defense has a lot of holes. Uh, that's I'm not ignoring that. But believe it or not, it's pretty difficult to address every single team concern in one offseason. No, they did not do as much as you would have liked to see with the defense, but they vastly improved the offensive line by upgrading both tackle positions. They acquired two tight ends to properly develop a new coach's scheme and utilize said scheme to build a weekly game plan which plays out to the team's strengths. For all intents and purposes, they can go into next offseason with a holes-to-address list that doesn't read everything. Again, Seems like something to be excited about, but what do I know? Whatever, I, I gotta tell you, I'm honestly afraid of what Twitter will look like if this team clinches a playoff berth. A playoff season, something Cleveland hasn't seen since Toby Maguire debuted as Spider-Man, and I can't help but think my timeline will be filled with nothing but droopies. I mean, whatever, I don't think they'll go far, and I'm just not sure I want to watch them get all the way into the playoffs just to lose. And with this defense, what's even the point of going if they're not going to win the Super Bowl? And right now, Baker Mayfield just doesn't look like a guy who can consistently throw for 500 yards and 10 touchdowns per game. Better replace him in the offseason. That's what you sound like to me. Every grumpy tweet, it's in that voice. How's that feel? Hope it stings. All right. Shifting gears. Again, as mentioned, the Browns right back under the primetime lights next Sunday against the Giants. Either versus Daniel Jones, and that's going to become a narrative because if you'll recall, Baker Mayfield admitted shock when seeing the Giants draft him in 2019. And everyone was like, well, what if Daniel Jones is suddenly better than Baker Mayfield? Wouldn't that be something? Right now, he's not. Not saying he can't be, but uh, hold on to the damn ball. After Sunday, Daniel Jones, you keep worrying about those fumbles then, but after that, you can fix it. Or we're going to see Colt McCoy, which, boy, oh boy, past versus the present, that'd be fun, sort of. I always like Colt McCoy. Yeah, he had a pop gun arm, but he had moxie. Again, I'm, I'm sift through the past Cleveland quarterbacks we've had to watch and pick a favorite. Can you? Cody Kessler was, you know, a nice guy. And uh, I'll forever feel bad for Deshaun Kaiser. And then there was, um, you know, Jake DeLome seemed fun before the season started. So, yeah, Colt McCoy is probably going to be one of my favorites. Anyways, enough of that. Let's talk about the Cavs for a bit because, hey, this team played a game. Two of them for the first time since pre-St. Paddy's Day. Oi. A couple big takeaways from games, which, yes, don't count, but still, basketball is back, and I'm not going to let the preseason aspect of it stop me from reacting to what I saw. Such as, 
the realization that, yeah, yeah, Isaac Okoro, he, uh, he sure knows how to basketball. In his first bit of action for the Cavs, a team he joined a month ago, 18 points, 3 steals, 6 of 9 shooting, a plus 13 plus minus rating, and 16 of those 18 points came in the fourth quarter against backups I know. Three of those points came on a last second game winning layup and won. After he locked down TJ McConnell and forced a missed jumper. So yeah, I from a from a decent debut standpoint, I think that qualifies. Again, he played against mostly second stringers, but let's just stop for a minute and remember this kid's journey. Isaac Okoro has been in the NBA for one month. Drafted November 18th, first competitive game December 12th. He had no summer league. He had no real training camp. It was, hey, congrats, you play for Cleveland now, see you on the court in a couple weeks. That That's a whole lot in a short span of time. For him to come out and in his first two NBA games of experience, pour in a total of 33 points on 63% shooting, 3 of 5 from 3, pretty damn good. And yeah, in his second preseason game, the plus-minus rating wasn't as good. But again, if that's how he's going to look one month after becoming a Cavalier, honestly, how much longer can you really hold off on starting him? I said it last week, I'll say it again. When you heard he needs work on his jumper, mildly concerning. It was. His shot is broken is never an ideal phrase to be associated with. The difference maker, though, is whether or not the player in reference is going to work hard enough to fix it. And yeah, I'd say early returns sure as hell indicate that Isaac Okoro is going to work hard to fix it. And honestly, you'll probably have to drag him out of the gym while he's trying to do it which I love. Again, yes, it's preseason. I'm not here putting money down on him winning Rookie of the Year just yet. But I'm not going to sit here and use preseason as a reason to not be encouraged by what we've seen from Okoro so far. One of the players that he's competing with for the starting small forward role is our old friend Jenny! I am aware that I am a bit of a Jetty Osman apologist. I am aware of his flaws. Defensively, not great. Per basketball reference of the 529 NBA players graded for defensive rating, which is an estimated points allowed per 100 possessions, Jetty came in at a cool 491st. Obviously, you know, you want that to be a bit higher. And he's been inconsistent. He has. He got a little hesitant shooting last season. He averaged almost two fewer attempts per game than he did in 2018. I still like him. I still think he could bring value to the Cavs. It's going to be off the bench, of course, eventually, once Okoro's inevitable starting role is granted. But uh, my go- there were so many Cavs fans who just want nothing to do with Jetty Osman. And I'm not saying Jetty's jersey needs to be retired tomorrow. But, uh, example... The guy was 0 for 2 in his first 10 minutes of preseason action this year. The first bit of competitive basketball he has played since, again, March. And you'd think the guy came onto the court wearing the wrong uniform and a football helmet. Just hundreds of tweets saying, Ah, Jetty, he can't play, man. I'm over him. He's got to go. 
And then he came back and led the team in scoring with 23 points on 6 of 11 shooting, eventually shifting what was an ugly plus-minus rating to a not-great-but-still-fine minus 3. And yes, I'd rather see Okoro eventually nab the starting gig, and I fully think he will. But I still like Jetty. I'm not saying he's flawless. He lacks consistency in his defense. Could be better. Still, I think he'll make a solid bench option. Keeping it a little bit short uh, for the Cavs this week, because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to baseball. So we're going to shift gears and talk about the Cleveland Indians. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait, oh, sorry. Let's, uh, let's talk about the Cleveland Baseball Club. More on that in a bit. When we last left off, literally as I wrapped up my last show, longtime Cleveland first baseman Carlos Santana had officially signed with the Kansas City Royals. Two years, $17.5 million contract, not a bank breaker, but a nice deal for him. He's entering his age 35 season. Good for him. I really mean that. Outside of a one-year stint in Philly, Santana has been a steady, consistent presence in the middle of Cleveland's lineup since 2010. So I wish him all the best in the barbecue capital of the world. Now, naturally, when a player leaves Cleveland's baseball club, the typical fan response is to stamp feet over cheap ownership. And I will not sit here and carry the water for the owners. I'm not arguing against that case at all, uh, overall at least. It, may, it remains truly depressing that a player Cleveland drafted, a homegrown, franchise-level elite talent, is inevitably leaving because he's too expensive. That just should never be a thing in any sport. I don't care how much the team brings in. You shouldn't price yourself out of someone who spent their entire career in your system. But that's not Carlos Santana I'm talking about. That's Francisco Lindor, the soon-to-be not-Cleveland baseball player. I'm not ready. Anyway, Santana, look, I said it then. I'll say it now. You could make an argument for the team when it comes to its decision to let him walk. I'm not endorsing the decision. Nor am I sitting here and trying to sell you this narrative that money wasn't the main cause of this outcome. It very much was. However, a simple look at Santana's career trends shows you something that I don't know, maybe it stuck out with the front office. Something that potentially could convince them that it was okay to part ways with him. So what I'd recommend you do, I want you to go to Carlos Santana's fan graphs page and run a graph showing his slugging percentage, his weighted on base average, and his weighted runs created plus across his entire career. So we're talking power and overall offensive value every year since 2010. Now when you do that, you're going to see a really unique trend line. Literally all three of those stats follow this strange three-year cycle. All right, it starts with a season where he has all three of those numbers. They're just up. They're really good. Just great starting caliber, middle of the lineup hitter. And the next year, they all drop, all three of them. And then the following year, they drop further. After that, they spike right back up. And this thing, it literally repeats itself. To date, this cycle has occurred three separate times. Same way every single time. Up, down, down, up. It's like a freaking Nintendo game code. Now in 2019, that spike was huge. It was a career year in slugging percentage, his highest WOBA, and weighted run created plus since his rookie season. Unsurprisingly, it was also his first All-Star berth. And the thinking was, okay, he's back from Philly. He's always loved Cleveland. Maybe he's just more comfortable now. I mean, look at him. 
It felt lofty to assume he could replicate those numbers. But hey, who's to say he wouldn't do just as good, maybe a little bit worse, the next year? That's not what happened. 2020 represented the biggest dip in this trend line. His slugging percentage dropped 165 points year over year. It was the first time his WOBA and WRC Plus were below average. Yes, 60-game season, and I am not here to make too much of any stat that comes in that sample size. But this followed his career plotline to a T. And said line, if it stays on the same path, will go down further next year. I am not predicting that. I'm just saying that if he stays on this trend, the one that he's been following for a decade now, that's where we're going. Now, if you're in the front office and you see this, do you invest in him and bank on the idea of Carlos Santana finally bucking this trend as he turns 35? I'm not saying hell no. I'm just saying that's a little bit of a gamble. So from that sense, I do get it. And like I said, I'm not dogging him. I'm not saying this team didn't need Carlos Santana and his remarkably consistent OBP. I'm just highlighting a career trend that's there for everyone to see and suggesting it may have played a role in the final decision here. And again, that is not the main reason that Carlos Santana is a royal. The biggest reason is he, uh, he costs money, so he's out. But I'm just saying that this may have been a consideration as well. Just a weird trend where best bet, if he follows this trend line, is he's really good in 2022. And from an investment standpoint, I can't get behind that. And I say this completely hesitant to buy stock in the in-house replacements. The top two candidates on the roster to replace Carlos Santana at first are Jake Bowers and Bobby Bradley. I have concerns. I'm not saying either player is doomed from the start. I'm just refusing to ignore the elephants in their respective rooms. Bowers, look, I've talked about him a lot. Cleveland bet on him in trading for him back in December of 2018, and it just hasn't panned out yet. He had a great first half with the Tampa Bay Rays in early 2018. He had an OPS of 864. He had a weighted on-base average 51 points above average. And since then, he's fallen off a bit. I don't know if that's him being solved or what, but his first year with Cleveland shed some light on a few holes in his game. He's inconsistent at the plate. He has a high strikeout rate, a below average OBP, and if you dig in a little further, it seems like he has some issues reading the strike zone. Uh, looking at his swing percentage profile, he's a bit gun-shy with pitches along the outside lower corner of the strike zone. In 2019, the average left-handed hitter swung at 54% of pitches on the low away corner. Bowers swung at 33% of them. And again, these are in the strike zone. These are called strikes. Same with belt level away. In 2019, a league average lefty hitter swung at those pitches 57% of the time. Bowers, 38%. So yeah, there's some work to do there. And look, let's just say it. Cleveland gave 11 different players innings in the outfield last year. 60 games. 11 outfielders. Not one was Jake Bowers. Mike Freeman, who entered 2020 at age 32 with four outfield starts in 132 career big league games, he gave Cleveland 25 outfield innings. Bowers, none. 
To me, it's telling that Cleveland left no stone unturned in finding an outfield combo that works, unless that stone's name was Jake Bowers. Uh, There was a report saying, oh, he was this close to being called up. I'm not sold on that. Again, Cleveland's outfield was constantly shuffled all year long. If Bowers was truly on the cusp, as this report implied, I don't see how he doesn't get a look. An important call-out, though, flagged by Matt Bretz of Ohio vs. Everyone, is Bowers' age. He's only 25, far too young to cast off. Just way too young to determine that he is not worth your time from a developmental standpoint. And again, he has kinks to work out, but you can't say he's a lost cause yet. I think this year, honestly, it probably messed with him a bit. There was a lot made about Jake Bowers heading out of the 2019 season, aiming to put a ton of work into his swing. He wasn't receptive to coaching that year. He admitted that that was a problem, and he's going to try and fix it. Then he came to Arizona in February, looking to show off all that work, and it just it didn't click right away. And then the years paused, and he basically has to restart the process in attempts to make the team in a preseason summer camp four months later. That's not easy. You know, like, I feel for the guy. Like, that's that's just a lot to process, and it's understandable that it just didn't come together for him. So we'll see what happens. As for Bradley, we know the book on him. Bobby Bradley has the ability to hit baseballs to Neptune, but strikes out far too often. The power is intoxicating, I'm not going to lie. But until he can improve a K rate that was up to one strikeout every three plate appearances in 2019... Kind of hard to put a lot of eggs in that basket. Now, from the overreaction department, he only had a 21% strikeout rate in spring training this past February, so fixed? No. No, that's that's not how that works. But I'll take signs of encouragement where I can find them. Should be interesting. I'd imagine this coming spring training is basically going to be a tryout between Bowers and Bradley for first base. I don't see Cleveland shopping for a new first baseman because that costs dollars. I know Josh Naylor's name has been mentioned as a first-base solution. He's played the position before. I'd personally rather see him in the outfield. A, he's put in a lot of work to adjust to that position. And two, Cleveland's outfield needs as many warm bodies as possible until someone jumps out. Naylor showed that he could hit rockets when he's in a groove, so I'd rather see him in the outfield unless absolutely necessary to move him to first, which, you know, I hope for the best. I hope that Bowers or Bradley stands out, but I'm not... Willing to invest in that outcome yet. All right, well, like I said, there was bigger news regarding Cleveland baseball than just roster moves this past week. The story initially broke Sunday night, confirmed on Monday, Cleveland will indeed be ditching the nickname Indians. It came out of nowhere, honestly. Now, what I mean by that is not who saw this coming. Everybody. Everybody saw this coming. Sorry, wait. Everybody who's been paying attention as opposed to plugging their ears and threatening to boycott the team if they change the nickname. I meant more of a, whoa, I wasn't expecting to get this alert tonight. And look, I really don't feel like venting about that. I did it several times over the summer. My stance remains the same. This was always going to happen. Always. Yes, they got rid of Chief Wahoo and that was long overdue. But that never eliminated change the nickname from the conversation. It just delayed said conversation. It was a good move. It was not the only one. I get this decision. I support this decision. 
I understand those who have long argued for this decision to eventually happen. It is, at the end of the day, just a nickname. That is it. Cleveland's baseball team did not ruin your life or your time as a fan by making this call. Cleveland's baseball team did not spit in your face by making this call. Cleveland's baseball team did not insult one of your family members by making this call. Cleveland's baseball team decided to change its nickname. Nothing more, nothing less. Of course, it'd be foolish to assume that five months after the announcement that this was now a very likely outcome, more people would have just embraced it as reality. No, no, no. There's still plenty of, I'm done with this team. That's the last straw. I'm sure some of these cranky pants who said that claimed the same thing two years ago when Wahoo was ditched, but that's neither here nor there. I've seen people blame this on quote-unquote cancel culture, also wrong. People have voiced their concerns about this nickname, and they've deemed it offensive far earlier than when cancel culture became a thing. I've seen people say, Whenever, I, I don't understand what the big deal is. It's just a nickname. It's, it's just baseball. Again, wrong. To you, it's just baseball. To Native Americans, it's just being turned into a mascot and a caricature. It's being animalized. I saw, and this was just a tremendous display of mental gymnastics. Someone said, this is sad. The Indians are just erasing Native American culture. No. That's... No. Native Americans are the ones who've been protesting the nickname for years. They're the ones who want to stop seeing their race represented this way. They're the ones Paul Dolan met with when ultimately coming to the decision to ditch the nickname Indians. This is not about erasing Native American culture. This is about treating it with more reverence than nicknaming a baseball team after it in a way that was never about celebrating or educating anyone on said culture. Just, wow, that one's still, just days later, still processing it. And yeah, tons of people saying they're done spending money on this team. Fine. You do whatever you want to do. They won't change anything. Just as the threat of walking away from the club didn't stop this outcome from happening in the first place, way back when you said it in July. Like I said back then, I'll say it again now. This was inevitable. The name was going to change. It was when, not if. You do not put out a release that says we're considering a nickname change and then not change it. There were people I saw in response to the initial release saying, "Uh, Don't do it if you change the name. I am out. The only hope for that crowd was that Cleveland would put that July release out and then just hope everybody forgot about it, which would have been ill-advised and also terrible. There was only one true outcome here, and that was a nickname change. It was, again, inevitable. All that said, I personally took a little bit of an issue with how the team decided to handle it. Now, back in July, we did a roundtable with SI and discussed what we thought was going to happen with the nickname change. And my prediction was that, yes, the name will be changing, but what will happen is they're going to announce announce the change this winter and then say 2021, that season, it's basically going to be the farewell tour for the nickname. We'll still use it, then make the full change after that. Because this isn't a simple process. You can't just wake up and be another team. There's copyright and merchandising efforts that need to be made. And that's exactly what they're doing. 
2021, they'll be the Indians. The problem, to me, is that owner Paul Dolan's announcement kind of didn't include a timeline. It's going to happen, totally. I swear, Indians is going away. Just, you know, we don't have a deadline yet, and uh, so we're going to make one. Just just keep, keep, we'll keep you posted. That's weird. I, I That I don't get. It's just every step of this seems to be yet another way of saying, all right, it's, you know what? It's time. We're It's time that we decide to officially consider changing the nickname. That will happen at some point in the near future. Not today, obviously, or next year, but it is coming because we, we understand. We understand the complaints. Again, definitely not this year, though, but maybe in 2022. I don't want to put a, a date on it, but it's going to happen. I, guys, I swear. We mean it this time. As far as when, we don't know. But we're, uh, we're taking a stand sometime, eventually. Uh, yay! I'm glad they've come right out and said it's happening. And again, I guess they wouldn't do it for 2021. But just say 2022. Just say that's when it's happening. Because honest to God, you come into the season after next still yelling, we're working on it, okay? That will be an awful look. It will look like a team that isn't as committed to change as it's claiming to be. Not even a little bit. This is an intricate process, but not that intricate. A team that commits to a nickname change and still can't get one figured out two years later is a team that's not interested in a nickname change. That's a team that just likes lukewarm PR. So yeah, I'm not a diehard fan of that. Really hollow announcement. Also, they're still going to sell merchandise with Indians and, and Chief Wahoo on it. Wow. Literally, we will continue to sell selected merchandise featuring our historic names and logos, including Chief Wahoo, as a way to acknowledge our history. <sighs> oh, oh, but don't worry. Because, you know, since the team cares so much about promoting diversity and inclusion, the profits from Wahoo sales will be donated to Native American causes. We value equality, so the sales we make from merchandise covered in the racist caricature you've hated for years will go directly to the people it offends. There was no other way to donate to that cause. None. Like, at all not creating some sort of foundation, promoting the causes that you're donating to, nothing. Just, I know this offends you, but would giving you dollars from the sale make it feel better? That, that's literally one of the terrible fan solutions I saw over the summer, and it's being promoted by the team itself. I had people say, well, why not just keep calling in the Indians, but, you know, give them some money. You mean like a bribe? No, no, not like a bribe, just easing their concerns by paying them to stop complaining. So a bribe. No, I think you're misconstruing it. You get the point. Now, it was brought to my attention that selling merchandise is the only way to maintain licensing rights. And I get the loophole, but the messaging is just gross. We know it's offensive, but we're still going to sell some stuff covered in it. Because team history... They'd never do it, but just come right out and say, look, it's the only way to make sure one of these pissy fans doesn't buy the licensing rights and sell a bunch of Wahoo stuff out of spite. Whatever. This this gets uglier before it gets better, unfortunately. 
It's moving in the right direction. It is not moving nearly fast enough. It's eventually going away. Awesome. We just don't know when. And they're still selling stuff with the nickname and logo on it under the guise of charitable donations because really, they don't want one of these fans swearing off Cleveland baseball for life to suddenly own the rights to a logo they'd attempt to paint on a stadium-adjacent billboard. Oh, God. I don't know. I'm tired. I'm so tired of this. Tired of this narrative being dragged out. Tired of this decision being an eternal stall. Just do it already. For the love of God. You want to do the whole 2021 is the last season thing? Fine. But then come right out and say, and then 2022, it's gone. We're working on a new nickname. We'll get you updates on that. But that is when it's coming. This whole, you know, we don't want to put a timeline because it's a tricky situation. You should, you put this announcement out in July. There's no, again, I say it again. There was no way that announcement came out and there was any other outcome besides we are going to change the nickname. None. So miss me with the whole, oh, we need time to figure this out. And, and to the people that are mad about this still, I will just wrap this up with the best tweet I saw about all of this. It came from Tom Moore of Dogs by Nature, a great blog. Please read. Tom noted that one of the responses you always hear from some of the cranky fans about this, when they defend the idea of keeping the Indians, the grumpier folk just say, I don't understand. What's the be- It's just a nickname. Okay, well, that, by that logic, you shouldn't care that much about losing it. Because what's the big deal? It's just a nickname. If that can be a defense to, I find it offensive, it can be a defense to, well, then we're taking it away and I don't care if you're mad about it. But, as we know, logic doesn't really have a seat at the table at these arguments. That's going to do it. I'm just the, Part of the reason I want this to finally be over is because I'm tired of talking about it. It's going to happen, so make it happen. Stop stalling, Lord. That's going to do it for this week's show. I've been your host, Casey Drotter. You can follow me on Twitter at cdrotter19 or on Facebook at CaseyDrotterRant. Be sure to subscribe to the CLE Sports Talk podcast. I got maybe at least one more episode in me before life gets hectic again. Unless, you know, I can find some time. I don't know. But hopefully it's one filled with positive stuff about the Browns. I can dream. All right, I will see you then. Until then. Wear your damn mask and go Dayton Flyers.